A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Who Am I This Time? with me, David Morrissey. Each episode, I'm talking to performers from film, television and theatre about one significant role in their career. It might not always be the role they're most famous for, but in each one, I'll be trying to find out about their preparation, the excitement and the sense of nostalgia that goes with any key role in an actor's lifetime. After serving an apprenticeship with a printer, Eddie Marzan started acting in his 20s, becoming instantly recognisable in character roles in UK TV and in independent film. But it's in America where his career has really exploded, mainly due to playing Terry in Ray Donovan, which has led to roles in Hollywood films such as Deadpool, Atomic Blonde and Sherlock Holmes. Eddie has worked with the director Mike Lee three times, and I caught up with him during lockdown to talk about the first of those, where he played the role of Reg in the award-winning film Vera Drake. Great. So thank you to Eddie for joining us. We're uh, going to be talking about Vera Drake, which uh, was made in 2004, and the character is Reg. Um, I saw it again recently. It's such an amazing film. But I just wanted to talk to you, a little, take you back a little bit before Vera Drake. I know you've done quite a lot of telly. Is that where you learned to be on a film set and with a camera, or did you do any of that at drama school? Did you do any camera technique or anything like that? No, I think... Um, no, I never did it. We never studied any real camera technique at drama school. And um, I think the things like Bill and Casualty, and I was always... When I used to do Crime Monthly, they used to bring you back every other month. So I think I did every crime in London. <laughs> and, uh, and I think I got caught in every one. I got nicked. Um, so I wasn't very good at it, really. Um, I, before before um, Vera Drake, I was lucky enough to do Gangs of New York. And I spent nine months standing next to Jim Broadbent. And that, and that was uh, a priceless uh, education, really. Just learning how to be on a film set with the camera, how to keep your powder dry, not get too um, lost in all the, the politics and, and the dynamics on the set, how to be polite to people, how to always... There's something zen-like about Jim on a film set. He's, he, he's kind of like a Taoist monk. He just, he's just nice to everybody and always delivers. So that was a big... Um, a big education for me, really. But, but, but Vera Drake, the funny enough, Vera Drake came, 
The same year I did Virajay, we did 21 grams in America. So those two were where I kind of found my feet, really. Yeah, and that's, also, that's another great film with a great, you know, great performance in that. Yeah, it's a lovely film, yeah. And when did you first hear, what was it like you first hear about Vera Drake? Did you know its title or what it was about or did you just meet Mike for a chat or what? how does that work? We, uh, I first got asked to go and see Mike and you go and see him in, in his uh, studio, in his office in, um, I think it's Greek Street. And the funny thing was there was a woman of the night underneath who had a who had a, a, a kind of um, a business, a running business underneath. And I turned up early for the meeting, really keen, and there was a cleaner there. And she thought I was there to see the lady of the night. So she <laughs> she kept telling me, I said, I've got to go in. And she kept telling me, no, wait, it's not open yet. We're not clean. We've got to clean it out. And I was going, I want to go in. And she thought I was gagging for a bit of the other. <laughs> and I was trying to tell her that I had an audition. <laughs> um, oh, that's brilliant but, So you uh, eventually get in Oh yeah And then I popped in there afterwards <laughs> <laughs> So when, when you see Mike did you, Are you telling him this story? No, I don't think I told him I was so nervous But you go in And you have a chat with him And you meet him with him And, and he asks you about yourself and then he asked me to do a slight kind of audition where he watches you and you just got to be sitting on a sofa doing something. I forget what it was, reading a paper or something. I forget what it was. And he watches you and he, I think he's trying to check out on whether you can just be rather than perform. That's what I suspect he was doing. And then I got the, the, the call from my agent to say that they wanted me to do the film. And then you go in to see him and he tells you the kind of character he wants you to explore. What you do with Mike is you bring a list of people you know. So you've got to bring about... He asked me to bring a list of about 150 people. 150? 150 yeah. people? Yeah, 100, and it's really hard. From Bethnal Green. But those are people you know intimately. They can be someone you saw on the street that, that just, that just um, ignited something in you one day or something. So he asked me to bring people, about 150 people from Bethnal Green, and then come over and keep bringing back. And what you'd do, you'd, you'd, come, you'd come to him, you'd give him a list, and then it, he would um, whittle it down to about 50, and you come back again, and then he whittles it down to 25. And in the end, after about a month, you've got it down to about four or five people. And then he says... Right, I want you to, this four or five people. We it gets it down to two. I think Vera Drake. We got it down to two people. There were two brothers in Bethnal Green that I knew very well, who were very hardworking, but they were very shy and kept themselves. And he said, "I want you to kind of base it on them." So what he would do would put you in a big, massive room, and you'd walk around in this room. And he'd say, when you go into that corner of the room, I want you to take on character A. Just take them on. Just, just, just be them, embody them in some way. And then you'd do that for about half an hour. And then he'd say, right, when you get to the other corner of the room, I want you to incorporate character B as well as character A. 
So you're kind of mixing it all up. You're spinning those two plates in your mind at the same time. And what, but what sort of stuff would you be doing in the corner of the room? Would you be just like... Just walking, just walking around, just being, creating a character. The physicality, this, any, any, any psychological impressions that were coming to your mind, anything. And then it's really faint, really faint. And then he would say, right, come back into the room... And you'd come into the room and, you'd, and you'd, you'd, you'd kind of decompress and you'd get it all out of your system. And then they'd sit down and they'd say, is there an essence of a character there? And you would say, yes. I said, yes, there is. I can see there's someone there. I don't know who it is yet. And then he says, right, next week, come back and we'll decide how to build it. And then next week you come back and he says, what do you think the character's name would be? And the interesting thing is, he, I kind of knew that the film would be based in 1950. And once we worked out that the character would be about 28, 30, we then, Mike then goes back 30 years till 1920 and finds the, the top 20 names of that year. And you choose one. <laughs> and so you go, I think he, that's his name. And, 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 uh, and we chose Reg. And then you work out what he does and where he went to school. And, and, um, and I spent a lot of time in uh, Summerstown, in, uh, just off King's Cross, because we worked out that that was where Reg was born. So I went to this block of flats in Summerstown and I saw, I saw a door and I said, that's it. And I found a local school and I found a local pub where his dad drunk. And, um, and we gradually built a character from there. But when you go into Summerstown and you're doing this, which is really atmospheric, picking up atmosphere, picking up, you know, all those things, you're doing that on your own, are you? You're not, you're, Mike, Mike has said, go off and find it, and you're going off and you're atmospherically trying to connect, like a ley line way of connecting with the past of the people who've been there. But I had a, I've got to tell you something, I had a Russian drama teacher for years, even after I left school, called Sam Kogan, who was this guy who studied with the Moscow Arts Theatre. And he, he said to us, he told me that there, there were um, four types of imagination in acting. Two were good and two were bad. The two good were active and free, and the bad ones were passive and forced. And the opposite of active imagination is passive imagination. And the way he would describe it was, Active imagination is when you don't have that you don't have that eye on yourself. You're not aware of how the audience is seeing you. You're not bothered about whether they like you. You always mention Marlon Brando as being one of the most the actors with the most active imagination because he never wanted to be liked by the audience. He couldn't care what they thought about him. And he said that that try to get active imagination. And then free imagination was when you, you physically relaxed and breathed rather than forced your imagination. So a lot of physical relaxation, a lot of meditation, a lot of yoga and stuff like that. And what I would do in order to get, what I worked out a technique for myself in order to get active imagination is I would create on, on tape recordings, I would do, if I would work out like a story for Rich with Mike, so I would work out a history for Reg with Mike. And then I would record this in a microphone and say, Mum. I would just say, Mum. My sister Mary. Dad. 
And then I would walk around Summerstown and every day with this Walkman on, creating images in my head of them. And I would create a kind of Im imagination picture bank of Reg to the point where it became almost subconscious so that I wouldn't have to draw on it when I was in front of a camera. It would always be there. And I would walk around and do this. And we did the same, I did the same thing for uh, Happy Go Lucky. I did the same thing for, for Ray Donovan. I would always create these, these recordings and walk around and try not to worry about how I looked. Just think the thoughts. Don't worry about how you look. And then gradually, it, the character of Reg suddenly came, started to come. I mean, you have to go and research things like you had to go to the Imperial War Museum and work out where he served in the army and where he went to work and, and, and he was a labourer and what he would eat and his mother died in the Blitz. Uh, we used to have lots of laughs as well. Mike, <laughs> tell, me, tell me about the laughs. How would, they, how would that happen? We were once doing an improvisation and I said that my mum was killed in, uh, in Central Street, Islington. There was a bomb landed and it killed her. My mum was always um, getting stuff on the black market because she had such a big family. She was always breaking the, um, the, the rations. I said, and she, and she got blown up. <laughs> and I just said, there was sugar everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and Mike, I remember looking up, being all in character, and Mike had tears running down his face. <laughs> that is brilliant. But how do you know when you're doing that? How do you know when something is the gold? How do you know when something is taking you into the right place? And so, is that purely instinctive? Is it just a feeling that you have? You don't know. Mike knows. Mike knows because it's in relation to what... what you don't know any of the other characters for ages, for like three or four months. You never get introduced to them. So what you're giving him is raw material that he then takes and puts into context with, with everything else. So he would, so I, I wouldn't know, for instance, that I was going to marry Vera's daughter. I was going to get engaged to Vera. I had no idea of any of that. So what he would do would basically take anything I gave him and he would have these little cards and he would, he would work out what I was giving him, whether it was conducive to what somebody else was giving him and whether it would work or not. So in a sense, he's like God. He tells you what you're creating. So, but do you know when you're doing this, do you know what the film is about? Do no. you think, you know, as far as you're concerned, you could be the lead in this film, you could have one small scene, you, ha you don't know. You don't know what it's about. You have no idea what it's about. I mean, we, uh, I had no idea. It was, I had no idea that she was a bullshitist until the police come and knock on the door and then arrest her. I had no idea. And none of the other characters did as either. No, none of the other characters did. None of the other characters did. So let's just, ju let's just jump back a second, though, before we get to that. So you're working in isolation on your own with Mike finding Reg. Yes. How long does that singular uh, solitary... Three months. Three months. Three months. And are you doing anything else on that time? 
No, just working on the character, just researching. Keep, kept going back to Silvertown, back to the Imperial War Museum. Kept listening to music, um, researching diet, researching um, work, researching companies that he could have worked for, the kind of things he did. And then gradually one day you go in and, and my, what happens is you get a call and you, you, you're sent away to work and create this character. And every like one or two weeks you get a call, Mike wants to see you on Thursday and you go in and then you do more work with him. And, and then eventually you go in and he, and he introduces you to Amelda and you're there with Amelda. And then he says, this is uh, this is, and then you kind of do an improvisation with Amelda, and then he introduces you to the rest of the family. Uh, but sorry to interrupt, but do you know what the relationship with this Amelda? So is he saying this is Amelda? She lives in the same block as you. This is yes, Vera. Yes, yeah. He'll say she lives in the same block as you, and then and then you kind of you do an improvisation with that, and then you do an improvisation on the stairs, and we, every scene that you see in in a Mike Lee film that I ever did, you would, you would do an improvisation and then, it, and it would be much longer than you see on the film. It would be an improvisation that would last for two hours. And Mike would take the essence of that and put it in a two minute scene or one minute scene. So it's a very exhausting process for him, but it's, it's, it's for everybody really. And then you meet Vera, and then uh, you meet some elder, and then slowly do you get to meet the other characters? You do, yes. And then you start to... He starts nudging you towards... towards um, the romance He's with the daughter. He starts nudging you towards that, and you start... Um, and when we start building that up, and then, you know... And, uh, and that took ages to build the romance, because they weren't the most articulate characters. No, that's the bravery of it, though, I think. You know, if, if you're working in, a, in an improvisatory way where he's saying, just go over there and show me, you know, the, the danger is that you do loads of things that you want to be animating. Yes. And I think you uh, and Alex, who plays uh, the, the, your fiancé in it, uh, you both play very inarticulate characters, very sort of, yes. you know... Uh, sort of slightly sort of people who feel like their emotions have been battered down yeah, more than yeah, anything else. Yeah. But that's, it's such a brave choice to make as, a, as an actor that, I think, particularly in a Mike Lee film. Yeah. Um, one thing I learned from Mike, I think as an actor, you, there's always a choice in your head. Should I be clever or should I be honest? Every, you know, we always think that's clever, but is it honest, you know? And with Mike, you learn to always be honest. You can't, you can't manipulate it in any way. If you try to manipulate it, it, it falls by the wayside. So I learned very early on just, to, I was just pleased to be there really. I didn't know how big a part I was gonna get. I didn't know what it was gonna entail. And I just remember just sit there and be in character. Somebody, I always think of it as um, just, you, you dig a hole and then you sit in it. You know, just sit there and, and let it, let the world go by and react to it and, and, and kind of let your subconscious kick in. If you're trying to manipulate it, if you're trying to push it in a certain direction that you want it to go, it's never, it never works. And is, when you went off on your own as Reg, would you, would you then go off with Alex or would you go off with Vera or would you go off in pairs and improvise as well? I think we would, 
I don't know. No, we, we would always improvise together with him. He, he would have people in multiple rooms. He would always find a big, big disused building, like a disused hospital or a factory or an office building, and he'd put you in different rooms. So you had your apart, your, your flat was this room, and you would build it up. So you would be in there, and, and, um, and he would always... So when you came together to improvise, you would improvise with him... And he would watch you improvise or he would go, you would all be in character and he would go from different rooms to watch you in character and then bring you in together. I mean, the, 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 um, he would also use this thing with a, a massive carpet. He does this great technique with, a hand technique with carpets, which I, is really difficult to explain, but it really cuts the corners of a lot of improvisation because all you can do in order to express what's going on within your character is to do it non-verbally with hand gestures on a carpet. And what it does is it, it makes you, gives you the discipline. You kind of see the tempo rhythm of the character in relation to the others. So you don't have to do hours and hours of, of um, relationships. You can actually go through years of a relationship just by doing that for a few hours really effective. I don't know where he learnt it. He's a genius at doing all these techniques that bring you to the point where you, you, you've got a fully-fledged character. So there must be lots of improvisation that never end up in the film. Lots, lots and lots and lots. There's loads. There's loads of improvisation that I did that, that, that never ended up in the film. I had one in my, my flat um, that never ended up there. Um, yeah, there's loads of things. I think there was scenes with me and Alex. There was much more of the romance that we improvised that, that never came out. Yeah, there's lots. And are you then, when you're in there, you're doing your scenes? You're, I presume you're not privy to any of the scenes you're not in. You're only improvising. You don't know anything that your character doesn't know. And then are you improvising the film? I mean, when you come to do the film proper with, a, with the camera on the film set... They're all, they're, that's a hard copy script that Mike has written from the improvisations you've done before. Yeah, what you will do is you'll spend about six months to eight, nine months rehearsing, doing improvisations. And then he will, at the end of improvisations, he will give every actor a list, a, paper, a, a, a list on a piece of paper. And on that list of piece of paper are the scenes that you will do in the film. So he will say, remember that scene where you met Vera on the stairs? We're gonna, that's going to be in the film. And the scene where you go for a walk with Alex, that's going to be in the film. And all these, and the, the scene where you ask her to marry you, that's going to be, all that stuff is going to be in the film. And then what he does is, you, you then find you've got his, his, his production team have sat down and talked to you about locations and clothes and everything the research that they do and the interaction that they have with the characters is that with the actors is amazing like even Chrissy Blundell will sit down with you and ask you about what hair tonic you use and this and it's it's incredible the how in-depth it all is but then what you happen when you have this list that's the shooting schedule so what will happen is you will go for instance the, my, my opening scene was on the stairs with Vera so on a Saturday, you're going, me, and, me, Mike, 
and the melder will go to that location and we will improvise that scene. And that scene may take two hours of improvisation. And we'll do it in the morning and then we'll come back, have a bit of lunch, come back in the afternoon, do it again. And then Michael will say, it's about, say it's about three quarters of an hour long. He'll say, let's cut that bit out. Remember you said this, this bit here. Let's go from this to this bit here when you said this. You've also got... uh, Heather, the screen, the the, um, the speed writer there as well. So she's writing down everything you're saying. And he'll say, let's go from this bit to that. And let's cut out that middle section and just have that beat to that beat. And then, so gradually what you're doing, is like being a musician. You're gradually finding notes and you're cutting out eight bars or whatever. Just go from that bar to that bar and that. And then you do it again. And then the next day you come in and all the crew are there and you show the crew what you did. And then Dick Pope will watch it and he'll say to you, right, okay, I know how we're going to shoot this. One of the things I most love about Mike, and we've had discussions about this, sometimes as actors, the most, I often find the people I have most difficulty with are the camera department. People often think that the actors are the, um, the egos on a film set. They're not, it's the camera department. <laughs> They're the rock stars. They're the rock stars. <laughs> no one can eat to the camera department of it. <laughs> And, and Dick Pope is amazing. What Mike and Dick Pope are the best at the business I've ever seen is they watch what the actors do. They have a list of the shots they now want to get. They know they want to get a wide, they want to get two singles, they want to get a mid-shot, whatever. But they don't dictate to the cameras how, to the actors, how they will get that. So they watch what the actors do and they say, I can get that mid-shot here or that wide can come into a mid-shot if I move. And so it's much more fluid and actually, it's quicker than most people think. Most producers are panic and they want you to set up shots really quickly and, and black clockwork. And actually, always, I always find that's it's country. It's it, it's not efficient because the, actually, what you should do is just watch what the actors do, and you might get it in one shot rather than four shots. Yeah, but I think a, a lot of the time, production, you know, producers, if it's not on paper, then they can't plan. So if you say. I don't know what I'm going to do until we get there. That's the worst. <laughs> they, they, they panic when they, they, so, you know, but I mean, someone like Mike has great respect. I mean, you know, he's, he's, he's earned that yeah. respect. So when you're doing that improvisation the day before and he says, let's cut this bit, go from here to here, you, you as the actor, you're, you're, you don't feel that you would say, oh, I love that bit, Mike. Can we keep that bit? You just go, okay, you're the man. You just go, no, that's fine. You do it. You do whatever you want. But if you're, say you're on another set and you're talking to a director about a scene and you have a disagreement with about it, how do you, how do you handle that? I mean, I always feel my director is my boss, but I have got times when I feel like there's, there's things I want to do that they might not want me to do or they haven't got time for. How do you, how do you as an actor approach that? I've learned, I've learned a lot from, from being in America, working in America, what I've learned it's great. I'm, I'm, uh, being a British actor in America, there's ways that I've learned to play it. Like, British actors always call directors sir. We always do. <laughs> American actors don't. We always call directors sir. So if the director wants me to do something, I'll do it for him. But then I'll give him, I'll, I'll do it. And then I say, can I have one for me? And, or, or I'll say, this one shits and giggles. And then you kind of do what you want to do. 
And quite often that's the one they use because you've actually incorporated what he wanted and brought your own thing to it. But you do have to serve what the director wants you to do. You can't usurp the director because then it's just chaos. But it's very, it's very different working in episodic television with directors than it is working with an auteur like Mike, isn't it? I mean, particularly in, in long, long-running TV shows, sometimes directors are coming in and they're only doing one episode. Yeah, and they haven't got the... That's really interesting because some, like on Ray Donovan, they, they come in and it, it's very hard for them to have the authority. If they're going to shoot a scene... If I've played Terry Donovan for eight years and they're going to come in and shoot a scene, it's very hard for them to tell me, to tell me how, what Terry would do. So in a sense, they don't. To be fair to them, they don't. They just shoot. They just they shoot it the way they want to shoot it, but you do what you want to do, really, you know. Okay, just going back a bit with this, uh, do you, with this, uh, because it, there's a lot of secrecy around uh, uh, Mike's work or, you you know, you don't know what's going on, you don't know the main premise of the script, you're just stay, stay, staying with your character, does that mean that he shoots chronologically? Yes, he does. I think so. As far as, as, far as I know, he does. He did with Vera Drake, although he had to come back... There was one point in Vera Drake where Mike always wants to use a practical set, so he will always shoot within a property and within within a house or within a room. So no built sets. No, but with Vera Drake, when we had the scene of the um, the engagement and Vera had all the food out, we had to rebuild that set because they suddenly realised they couldn't get the camera around to shoot all the angles that they needed to shoot. You know. It was like trying to do Downton Abbey. (laughs) (laughs) In a a phone box. (laughs) I love that scene, though. I mean, that scene and its placement as well, you know, because we know what's coming. And there's this joy and love and celebration. But as the audience, there's this ticking clock of Peter White coming to Yeah, I know. It's it's amazing, isn't it? We didn't know that that improvisation took 15 hours. That improvisation started on a Saturday morning. We came in really early and I was ready and I knew I was getting engaged that afternoon and I got dolled up ready, had a wash, put my shirt on and all this and went there and we did all of that and Peter and the police were in another part of the building which was then for them the improv- within the improvisation was the police station and they were getting ready to come and arrest this woman and Vera was there and so all that, ha- all that you see there, we improvised that for 15 hours. But there is a funny story about this that me and Imelda always share. Because <laughs> if you watch the film, when the police come in, Reg doesn't say anything. Reg, Reg comes, I'm kind of out of shot, and I'll tell you why that happened. Because just before Peter White knocked on the door, I, in, in improvisation, I turn around, and I, now Vera's got this table where you get one side up, you know, like, it's a table, but if you want to have more people, you get one side up and the other side up. You lift it up. Yeah, it's a drop, yeah. drop leaf table. So in the improvisation, and Imelda and me have got a similar sense of humour, so I said, this is a lovely spread, Vera. And she said, yeah, it's been ages since we had both flaps out. <laughs> I put my head in this salad and I, I couldn't stop laughing. Because I thought, Mike's going to sack me if I start. And then there's a knock at the door, 
and, and the police come in. And if you watch the film, I don't say anything because I could. I was trying to not laugh in the in the original improvisation. <laughs> I mean, and then that you had Danny Mays as well. Me and Melda and Danny Mays is the worst combination you could have. <laughs> oh. I know, I've, worked, I've worked with all three of you. I know. We'll be back with more chat after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, you're listening to Who Am I This Time? With me, David Morrissey. Now, back to this week's episode. God, but uh, but you know what? It really, the fact that you can have a laugh, one of the other things I was going to say is that scene, it's full of joy and celebration. Then you have that really heavy scene. What, on a day, what is it like on a day? I mean, you know, it's it's a film that, of, it's, a, it's about community and it's certainly about, you know, post-war Britain, but it does have a feeling of people in struggle. But the fact that you can have a laugh as well is really... Great yeah, music today is. It is, it is. It's, um, I think, I, I don't know whether you find this, but I think the place in your mind where you act is very similar to the place in your mind where humour exists. So quite often when you're doing really heavy stuff, you, you, you find a very dark black humour to it, you know, as, as a kind of release. You know, sometimes comedies are much more stressful than than tragedies because tragedy actors are laughing all the time for some reason. I totally, I totally, and and that thing of you know, comedies. When I've done comedies, the God, it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> it it just is hard because it's hard if you're doing many many takes to get that timing again and again and again. There's some, you know, to to really rehearse spontaneity is 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 it's, difficult. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And do you get to do lots of takes, or does Mike, once he knows what he's what he's doing, does he keep the takes to a minimum, or do you, is it like you get about two or three takes, I think, which is not a lot, is it? Because I think, but you don't need that many because you're mm-hmm. so in character and you're so well rehearsed. I don't think I've ever been more rehearsed for a film than I am when I work with Mike. One thing I've learned with Mike on on films, and what what I learned with Mike as an actor was. 
Give yourself 19 takes. Keep rehearsing and let them shoot the 20th. And then they'll think you got it in one. You didn't. You got it in 20, but you rehearsed 19 and they shot the 20th. That's what, you know, and a lot of actors don't do that. A lot of actors are on their phone or their, I don't know what they're doing, you know. And, and, and actually, you can save a lot of the energy in the day if you just keep working at it before you do the take. I mean, that's an important thing there, though, and I, w- I wanted to come to that later, but let's talk about it now, is about how you on set during the day, how you protect yourself, how you look after yourself, particularly in something like Ray Donovan, which is a long-running series, but something like Vera Drake, which is very sort of mentally sort of uh, demanding of you. How do you look after your energy and yourself and stuff like that? I mean, it's that's a, that's a big one, isn't it? That, so that you're there when that camera is turning, that you're, you're, you know you're ready. Um, I think... That- I realize that that's what I'm paid for. One of the reasons I think, one of the reasons I think people employ me, I think one of the reasons why I'm, I'm employed a lot in America, and I think that this is the same with a lot of British, British actors, is that American actors, because of the method, they always, their, their point of reference is their own psychological dynamics. So they may need 20, 30 takes to get it right. So, so whatever's going on in their mind, we have to wait until it's there. And in many times, quite often, they're the money. So they're going to put all those resources. And what American directors, and quite often I work with the American directors many times. I keep going back to them. What they do to me is they say, they, they know that I'm going to come in and I'm going to do it in two or three takes. And I solve a problem for them. You know what I mean? I, I make sure they're going to make their day. On Ray Donovan, we do it. On Ray Donovan, me and Dash would always be the ones who would help them make their day. And the way I do that is I, um, uh, I meditate quite a lot when I'm, on, when I'm on set. Within Ray Donovan, I would keep the Parkinson's going all day long. I would never stop the Parkinson's. So the shake and everything and, and the... the, the um, the symptoms were always something that I even when I, you know, I don't mean to be Daniel Day-Lewis about it, but I, I would just try and incorporate it just so that you wouldn't have to think about doing it when you were in the scene. Um, to me, that's probably the most important. And I take pride in that as well. I'm married to a, ma- I'm married to a makeup artist. I'm married to the crew. So I know how important it is when, as an actor, you come prepared. There's nothing worse for a crew who've been on set for 12 hours and they want to get home and read their kids a, a, a bedtime story and some actor hasn't learned his lines and it's half seven at night and, he, and, and you just think, mate, you're getting paid 10 times more than that grip and he wants to get home. So learn your shut up and learn your lines. Yeah, I, I, always, I always say that learning my lines is the least I can do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is. But also, are you, when you get a script, are you uh, giving yourself before you start work or the night before or anything, are you giving yourself an emotional story that you want to tell? Are you looking at, I know you might have certain things that you need to remind yourself of, but particularly if you're telling a story, unlike Vera Drake, out of, out of chronological order, like we, which is usually the norm, that you'll, you'll be t- telling a story all over the place. Is the work you're doing outside of the set, is it giving yourself an, an emotional arc to, to adhere to as you're going into the job? Yeah, you do. Yeah, I, I, 
I work out, yeah, you work out the arc of the character, you work out the, the kind of, I always imagine it, I, I always consider it, it's like you're building a, a track of a, of a ghost train ride, you know, you, and you've got to get on that track and ride it and, and believe it. On stage or on film, you have to create a journey that you're going to go on. I sometimes think that actually what, you, what, what you're actually doing and it's very interesting with what's going on with the Black Lives Matter movement and everything now, because my job as an actor, I always think, is to work out the character's prejudices. Because every time a character walks into a room, they always prejudge what's going to happen in that room, and it's always wrong. So I have to work out what they think is going to happen, and then allow myself to be surprised. Yeah, I, I, I often... For me, one of my key, and it's interesting, those keys in, one of the keys for me is always, what's he ashamed of? And, you know, what's he trying to hide? What's he, what, what's he hoping nobody will find out about him? Do you know those things? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that could be, you know, that he's a racist or it could be that he's a misogynist or that he's yeah. done something, you know, he's done something in his past or something. But there's something that he's trying to hide from these other people. And that might not be anything to do with the script at all, but it's just, some, it's just something for me to, you know, it's all, it is always about conflict uh, drama. So it it's about is, what's, it what's my own internal conflict in the scene. Yeah, yeah. And if you can hold that, and then you don't have to articulate it. It doesn't have to be a vocal articulate. You can just hold it. And, and if you're spinning that plate in the background, the audience kind of pick up on it. They, they know there's something there. They know there's something three-dimensional there. Yeah. And also, you mentioned something earlier on that I wanted to come back to, which was when you were first up to uh, meeting Mike. You said you were nervous. Can I just talk to you about nerves? And, you know, because you've done some big, big jobs. You know, you've been a, sta you know, a stage actor as well as a TV and movie actor. But nerves are part of our job. What, how do you uh, deal with nerves that they don't become so uh, incapacitating for you? I don't, really, I don't really get that nervous anymore. I used to get nervous. I mean, I think if I went back on stage, I'd get nervous. I haven't been on stage in 20 years. I don't really get nervous on film sets now. Compared to my life at home, I mean, I'm, in I'm in lockdown at the moment with four kids doing homeschooling. <laughs> A film set is like a is like um, tranquility, so I don't really get that nervous. I think I've, I've been lucky enough to to learn. This is not arrogance or anything, but we've been doing this for thirty five years now. Whatever it is, we know what we're doing. Can you remember when it when you first started out and nerves were part of it? Yeah, Can you remember? oh yeah, I remember that. I mean, meditation was a big thing for me, and also realizing that. Very early on, that it wasn't. A, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's about you've just got to play this character. Don't worry about whether people admire you or like you. Just play the character as, as honestly as you can, and don't manipulate the audience. Don't try and trick the audience. Don't don't get them to like you. Just just give give them this performance and let them do what they want with it. And then go home. I used to tell myself, and then whatever, whether you're good or bad or whatever, you, we'll have a go to the Fulham Road and you'll have a bit of cake. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always used to tell myself that. So, in a sense, that was one way of coping with it. I think the other, the other is when you get older. I've, I've, got, I've often spoken to to um, 
two drama students and they asked me, how do you cope with fear and nerves? And I've always said, get a mortgage. Get a mortgage. And then your fear of not mm-hmm. paying a mortgage is bigger than your fear of acting. So kind of get on with life, you know? Yes, and I think it's also that thing of we can get into an angst-ridden place as an actor. And I think uh, I talk to creative people all the time and there is an internal battle sometimes, isn't there, about, um, you know, that no pain, no gain sort of thing that I have to suffer in order to create. And there's a bit of that that's true, but, you know, you can, you can go down that road pretty to a pretty dark place if you're not careful. Yeah, and I also think that's a bit self-indulgent, to be honest with you, because if you've been doing it as long as we've been doing it, then you can do it. You don't need to do that. I think that's about them rather than the technique. I mean, I'm sure a carpenter who's been making tables for 35 years doesn't get into a dark place when he makes a table, just gets up and makes a table. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really buy that. You know, I don't, I don't, when I see that, I, I mean, I can understand when you play a character and you have to think dark thoughts and they can be very, very, they can affect you in a way that I completely understand. But I don't, I, I don't think we need to suffer and punish ourselves in order to create a character. It's not very, it's a very simple process. It just takes a lot of work. But also sometimes I think there is, you know, you have a creative thought, you have something that you want to uh, convey in a scene and you'll get there and everything else is going on and you it's, it's having the ability, I don't know whether this is a class thing, but sometimes it's having the ability to ask for what you need. Yeah, uh, no, I understand that, yeah. Either it's from a director or a producer or whoever that you can say, you know what, can we just hang on a second? I, I need this here or I need that here. It's how you, uh, you know, good directors will give you the space to create. But sometimes, you know, good directors yeah. are few and far between, aren't they? I, I, don't, um, I don't suffer from that as much as I used to because actually Mike told me once, he said to me, I was going off to, when I was going off to America to do 21 Grams after Vera Drake. And he said to me, I was talking about nerves then, and he said to me, you've got to understand that you spend much more time on a film set than directors. So I always remember that. So when I'm with a director, and also I see, I've seen how Scorsese does it, I've seen how Spielberg does it, I've seen how Mike does it. But Mike has never been on a set with Spielberg. And Scorsese doesn't know it. You know, you know what I mean? So there is this... Part of me now that when I, I, I think I, I think after 35 years, you have a natural authority where you go, I think you should think about this. And, and if they don't listen, and they've made two films, <laughs> you know what I mean? And you think, well, you've got to be a plum because you should really, I'm not going to tell, I mean, the, the trick is not to bully them or because you can't. I've never, I've never been that way. But you, but you can quietly have a natural authority and say, I think maybe you should think about this because this is... If something is in your character's mind, everything should be seen but nothing should be shown. You're not asking them to show it. You're just asking them to acknowledge it. And then they might not choose to use it in the edit. But if you give it to them, quite often they quite like it.
But also there's a sense, isn't there, that some, some actors like to talk about their intention. They like to talk about the scene. Other actors like to get it on their feet and to show. Yeah. I mean... I mean, and you can and you can be both. Do you feel that you have a tendency to eat between one? I or like the other? to get it up and do it. Right. To me, it's much more visceral because I because I came into acting without any academic uh, qualifications or, or experience. So I, I wasn't. I'm not a very. I wasn't very articulate in, in in what I wanted to say. But everything was very visceral to me. And for years, that caused me to have a lot of insecurity, especially within going back to class. Now it doesn't as much now. I realise now that actually I've been, that I know what I'm talking about, you know. And I think we, I think our generation do. You know, we used to listen to, I mean, we we used to listen to Jimmy Hazeldean and give him that authority. Well, we're, yeah. we're, we're Jimmy Hazeldean now. <laughs> do you know what yeah. I mean? So, yeah, I sort, of, I sort of know, what, I sort of feel like I know what I'm talking about at work, but nobody, no one no, else. No, I don't know what I'm talking about at home. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got a clue what I'm talking about anywhere else apart from on a My film wife set. Says that. She <laughs> said the only place you function is on a film set. I, I don't oh. function anywhere else. I'm a useless. Which takes me back to the fact that story of you were you were with your mates and it was to, you you were asked to be an extra on a film set or something. That's right. And you yeah. saw the main actor and you thought I can do that. What what yeah. what was it about the atmosphere that made you go Oh, this is my world. Well, there was, it was Jamie, well, actually it was Jamie Foreman. Jamie Foreman did a scene and he did it really well, walked across a, a nightclub dance floor. And I think I was on a, I was, I think I was, I was 18 or 19. I was, I was an apprentice printer. And I, I used to, I was a good dancer, we used to dance all the time. And I think I was flirting with a girl and I was making a laugh. And then I thought, I'm going down. I remember thinking I'm going down well here. <laughs> and then I saw Jamie and I thought I can do that if I can pull her I can do that <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant I have a similar story that for me I, I've done a play at school and somebody said oh you should go to this youth theatre so I went into town and I got to the youth theatre and it was behind this big metal door and I could hear this noise behind the door which was just fun the noise of fun and I thought, if I go through this door, it'll change my life. And I thought, I'm not doing it. I, I just, I shit myself. And I basically, I'm not doing that. So I just sat on the step by the door and this really beautiful girl ran down the street and went through the door. And I thought, oh, come on, I'll give it a go. <laughs> <laughs> and I went in and I never saw her again. And it just changed my life. I mean, it absolutely changed my Because I went through a door. It was just following something. It was crazy. <laughs> But look, the other thing I just wanted to come back to Vera, you know, there's scenes in the, you know, particularly when the police knock on the door, all that stuff. And you've done really, that's a very heavy scene. How do you, what do you require from the director and the fellow actors to, to get you to that emotional pitch, really? It's all about purpose, really. I always work on the purpose. I always, I always try to achieve whatever the character is trying to achieve. So I work out what they believe will make them happy. That's what I define as their purpose. What do I think will make me happy? And then I think it to such an extent that it becomes almost subconscious so that it, it, it spontaneously arises all the time. And for instance, with, with, with Tyrannosaur, um, Olivia and I had to research loads of cases of abusive relationships. 
So we had to read stories. And they were atrocious, what these men would do to these women. But one underlying thing I saw in all of these was the men wanted to be loved. They wanted to be loved. And I want to be loved. Every human being wants to be loved. So I would just work on the purpose to be loved, but understand the way, how did he see the world that he thought the way to be loved was to do it this way? And then just do it. And it's very important in those characters to not comment on them, is it? No, no you can't comment on them. I, I mean, um, uh, when I played Himmler, I played Himmler and I couldn't comment. I had to read up on him and, and I read his love letters to his wife and, and everything. And I had to play the man as he was and leave that to the audience to comment because that's the gift you give to them. If I tell them what to think, that, to me, that's an abuse of an actor to an audience. I shouldn't tell them what to think. I should present it to them and you think whatever you think. It's very narcissistic for me to, to try to tell you what to think. Yeah, and I always think that thing of, you know, I don't want I don't want to be sympathetic to my characters, but I have to be empathetic towards them. I have to understand what they're doing. I have to understand them. I love them. I have to sort of basically be true to what they are going through and what they want to what the world to see. One, 100%. I mean, I played recently I played Paul Wolfowitz in Vice and um, I was interviewed and they said, "How did you play?" And I, I'm, I'm a bit of a, I love American politics. And, and I read this, David, I mean, I think Daniel Finkelstein sent me some material, uh, Stuart Wood, um, Jonathan Friedland, they all sent me stuff to help me to research. And one of the things I found out about Wolfowitz was that he considered himself to be a Truman Democrat. So he thought the invasion of, the Iraq, of Iraq the Iraq war, the second invasion, was a kind of martial plan for the Middle East of what they've done for Europe. Now, I marched against the Iraq war and I think it was a terrible thing, but I couldn't play Wolfowitz with commenting on him from my political point of view. So I, when they interviewed me, I said, well, he considered himself to be a Truman Democrat and he thought he was doing the right thing. I mean, and then the Corbyn people came after me. Oh, you, and they don't understand. That's my job, is yeah. to... My job is to play him the way he is and not comment. And if you didn't play him the way he was, you'd be undermining it and it would all be too... Exactly. ...easy, it's, you know, yeah. Yeah, no, and then the payoff, because every part, every, you know, scripts are very mathematical. There's a setup and a payoff. The setup is playing it for real and then you allow the payoff to have its impact. But if you undermine the setup, you don't get the payoff. That's right, that's right, that's very good. Uh, just coming back to Vera Drake, what was it like when you first saw it? I mean, because presumably there was lots of stuff going on, you know, the Sally Hawkins storyline, all that stuff that you must have known was existing at all. We had no idea. And that's Mike's favourite part of the whole process is when he gets you in a studio in Soho and shows you the thing. We all sit down and watch it. And it's hilarious because the other thing is there's always someone who thinks they were playing the lead. And, uh, <laughs> and you know... They, when I, they, I actually they gave me an award for Vera Drake for the uh, the um, the Biffa gave me an award for best supporting actor and when they gave it to me they had it and they said well done best supporting actor and I literally looked, walked into the mic and said well I thought I was playing the lead <laughs> <laughs> but what's it like when you sit there and you're watching are you watching the other actors going yeah, oh my wow. god I mean I have no idea and it's amazing 
you get you get slight indicate because at the rap party they have a showreel of all the um, clapperboards. So every clap on the on the set, every scene number, they get, so suddenly you see, you think, what's that? What's that? What's that? What happened? There was, and you get an indication, and then six months later, you see it. And it's funny, it's amazing. So the whole process from that day when you walked in to Mike instead of going to the prostitute downstairs to the sitting in to sitting in that oh, oh let's take it to the rap party. What would you say that was? Is that the best part of a year? Nine months, I think. Nine months. I mean, Happy Go Lucky was a year. Was a year, a year of my life. Happy Go Lucky. From when he first asked me to do it, and I had to research conspiracy theories for a year, and then create that character. Yeah, that was a year. Wow, that's amazing. And also, just the other part of an actor's life, a little bit, is you know we put ourselves up there to be judged I guess for want of a better term I mean do you read reviews do you watch yourself do you how do you gauge what you're doing in that way yeah I I tried not to read reviews when I was younger and I couldn't stop it (laughs) (laughs) but then I realized I realized that that I had great faith in a collective consciousness so if you read reviews if you read one review at um, it can be painful or it can be, you can get, get elated. But actually, if you read the, the breadth of reviews, they are a, quite an accurate assessment of the film or of your performance. And actually, within that breadth of reviews, every doubt you had about the film is expressed and every confidence you had about the film is expressed. So there's no big, you know what I mean? Sometimes you read them and you think, I knew, I knew, I, I knew that was a dodgy, <laughs> and, he, and he mentioned it, but I thought that was great, and he mentioned it. So actually, they're quite accurate, really, as, as a collective. Human beings as a collective are quite accurate. But can they knock your confidence at all? Yeah, I suppose they can, but you just got to... Human, being, human beings are works in progress. You know what I mean? I'm, I'll do better next time. And, uh, and they do, but not, I don't know, not, not as much, really. I don't really get mentioned that much in reviews, to be, to be fair. I mean, the other, the other thing about reviews is, you know, you don't do the job no, for No, I don't do the job for And also, you're on the other one now. You're on the next one. By the time the review comes out, you're on the next job. I did have one reviewer once. I did a film and I played the lead in the film. It was one of the first times I played the lead in the film. And it was on Newsnight Review. And I thought I was really excited. Me and my wife sat up and watched it. And they asked this review, what did you think of it? And he said, well, the thing about Eddie Marson is he looks like a root vegetable brought to life by the occult. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you've got to get that on a (laughs) (laughs) T-shirt. I love that. <laughs> that is great. But yeah, uh, what what about watching yourself? I mean, how are you uh, uh, your own critic? What's that like? Well, the funny thing is, I never used to watch the screen. I never used to watch playback because I always used to think it affected my performance. And then I worked with Sean Penn on a film, Twenty One Grams. Yeah, it was, no, it wasn't that one. I, the, the, oh. I was supposed to work with him, and I was on the makeup bus, and they said, 
And, sh- and he was on the call sheet, and then they said, where's Sean? I'm holding that paper, and he was in Baghdad talking to um, Saddam Hussein. <laughs> <laughs> now, this was another film. <laughs> He's not coming, then. <laughs> <laughs> and these driver was still outside the hotel waiting for <laughs> But I was, doing a, I was doing a film with Sean, and he said to me, come and have a look at this. And I said, no, I don't like it. He said, no, it's your job to have a look at it. You're, I want, you've got to see if what you want to be, you want to convey is being conveyed. You have to learn to do this. And I, and I started doing it with him. And then I had to do it more and more with Ray Donovan because, because playing someone with Parkinson's, there's a real danger that you look like you're just knocking one out in every scene. Because all you're doing is shaking, especially if you're, fr- if you're framed by your chest. You look like you're masturbating the whole way through <laughs> a Boston accent. So what you have to do is you have to check that the camera's picking that up and, and the director's got a shot of that. And it's... But Sean taught me that, to, to take that responsibility and look at yourself. And now I do it more and I'm able to do it more in a detached way. Yeah, more, yeah. More, more and more now what I do is I watch, uh, I feel that what my responsibility is when I'm filming is the day. Yeah. Uh, it's just got today. So I'll watch the monitor, I'll watch playback, I'll talk to the director, I'll do all that. I'll, you know, I'll talk creatively, maybe have a bit of an argument or whatever it is. But if I can get in the car at the end of the day and said, I know it's in that can, he, he, might, he or she might not choose those takes. They might not have, yeah. you know, they might go in another direction. They might cut the whole scene. But I know that it's there if they want it, and that's my job. And I do watch playback and, and uh, monitors now much more than I watch the end product because the end product now seems to me to have nothing to do with me. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. I watched one of the films that with Ian McShane. And this director said to him, I just want you to give me, I just want you to give me choices, Ian. I just want you to give me choices. And he said, the problem with giving you choices is you might fucking use them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a couple of choices I don't want you to have. (laughs) But I guess if you're working with Mike, you know, you can... You can be as brave as you want because you know you're trusting him yeah. to make those choices. It's very way. freeing with Mike. It's very, very freeing because also you're not trying to manipulate the story. You don't know where it's going. You can only be in the present moment because yeah. he gives you the ignorance of the character. You don't have to forget about the story. You don't know the story. Yeah. So and there is no bad. If you if you stay in if you stay in that place, there is no bad because you're being true to that place. Exactly. Yeah. He made he made me a much better actor because he made me realize that uh, my job isn't, you know, just be honest. Well, it was a pleasure to see it again, Eddie. It's so great to talk to you. I mean, have you got any plans to come back onto the stage at all? Have you got anything like that? Once once theater once theaters start opening again, I guess. I don't know, mate. Really, I haven't. I, I, I mean, my kids are very young, and and I, and because I was working in America and and, and travelling home, commuting. Whenever I had a couple of months off, and they asked me to do a play, I I couldn't. I wanted to be at home and put the kids to bed. You know. Yeah, it's 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 really difficult for family life theatre. I mean, it just is. Mate, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Great stuff. See you soon, I hope. All right, mate. Love you. Take care. Loads of love. Bye. Who am I this time? 
is a Just Voices and Dulali production. Produced by Simon Lennigan, music by Greg Hatwell. Edited and mixed by Russ Keffert at Audio Egg and presented by me, David Morrissey.